This audio production is brought to you by the Islamic Institute of Toronto. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi ta'ala wa barakatuh. Welcome everyone. Uh, my name is Mamun Hassan and this is the IT Podcast Hour. So in our most recent Islamic History Month event, we hosted uh, today's guest uh, in one of really the most packed online gathering that we've had in, in a while actually. And we received more than 2,000 responses to the online event itself. And uh, as of today, we actually had about 8,000 views to the actual video itself of the event. And the event focused on Islamic psychology and Muslim mental health. Dr. Rania Awad was uh, our uh, keynote speaker and she's our guest for today. So she's a medical doctor with specialty in psychiatry. She completed her psychiatric uh, residency and fellowship training at Stanford University, where she's currently on the faculty as a clinical instructor in the Stanford Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences Department. I am truly excited to actually have uh, Dr. Awad with us at the IT Podcast Hour. Uh, so let's get into it. Dr. Rania Awad, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I hope you are doing well. Alhamdulillah. As well as can be expected in these times. Alhamdulillah. How are you doing? It's wonderful. Alhamdulillah, we're doing really good. Um, We are fighting the pandemic and we're going through the year 2020, expecting only the best from the year 2021, inshallah ta'ala. I want to get into this because I was really like excited to talk to you about this. First of all, um, the feedback that we got from the actual event itself was really amazing. A lot of people were so interested. First of all, before we even uh, boosted the event itself, we were just getting all kinds of uh, questions that people want to ask you about it. And also, there's always been this interest about uh, mental health, psychology, uh, and anything to do with the mind, I guess, especially in these days where... Um, I, I guess I don't even know what I would call it. The anxiety levels are just really, really high. Right. How are you feeling about these days? They are exactly as difficult as you're describing them, mashallah. Mm-hmm. I think that we are living through what everyone is calling unprecedented times, at least in modern history, of course, mm-hmm. And every anxiety and every fear and difficulty people are feeling, it's not an exaggeration. This is real. But we'll definitely mm-hmm. be talking about how to modulate some of that for sure. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Why is mental health such an important thing? I mean, I think I, I, I love how you told your story and you were talking about how you actually got into it. Like you were just going to medical school and all of a sudden you start to realize that this is such a such a thing that's important. I, I want you to take me through the process, I guess, really, or the time when you thought, okay, this is as important or more important than physical uh, health. Well, for me, actually, subhanAllah, the story starts well before medical school because the story actually starts with me studying formally the Islamic sciences, right? The Islamic sacred sciences, teaching in the community, working with particularly the women and the girls of the community. Um, You know, I'd studied in Damascus, came back to the U.S., was teaching actively. Um, And in the work that I was doing in the community, in the Islamic teaching, you know, whether Mm -hmm. they be the Quran classes, fiqh classes, whatever it was I was teaching at the time, what what really prompted me, I knew I was heading into medical school, I'd hoped to do health-based work, but it was actually the work of the community, the teaching that um, first opened my eyes that there was really something here that needed to be addressed um, and much more deeply. And that was essentially that there were so many concerns, issues, uh, you highlighted some of them, some of the anxieties and difficulties people go through. To me, I found that having been trained as an Islamic, you know, studies teacher, if you will, um, was not sufficient enough to answer some of the questions, personal questions that were coming forth beyond the basic fiqh answers, right, that I was, you know, trained to be able to say. And it was Mm -hmm. at that point that I realized I really needed to focus on something else, was given some really great advice about, you know, there are many doctors out there who can treat health conditions, but there are not many Muslims who are grounded in the deen itself that can also then work on the psychological and mental health conditions of the community. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what opened my eyes to this. Mm -hmm. So that's amazing that you say this, but, uh, it's not seen, I guess, mental uh, psychology is not seen as something that is crucial as important uh, within the Muslim community. I don't want to say within the, the like medical field, obviously that's not true, but within the actual Muslim community. I don't know if you want to tell me a little bit about, um, I, I don't know the background of where you come from. I don't know if maybe you had parents, was that you, what are you doing? What are you talking about? How did it work out? <laughs> Absolutely. No, and this is a, you know, this is a a running joke in my family because my first, you know, my first, um, when I first had the courage to say to my folks and I was in through, I was through medical school and I, you know, 
was expected to be some medical doctor of whatever specialty. And as soon as I said to them, you know, I think it's going to be psychiatry. The first response that came out of one of my parents' mouth was, you know, you're not going to be a surgeon, right? So like that, that's the immediate kind of response. And it's almost like, why quote unquote, waste your time with this? We don't need this. This is not part of our tradition, which then led to this weekend's conversation that I was telling you about how, well, is it not, is it truly not part of our tradition? And that led to a lot of the historical uncoverings of not only was it part of our tradition, but it is part of the holistic sunnah of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the holistic understanding of Islam of the mind and body both. You can't Mm. neglect one for the other. And this is Mm -hmm. part of our tradition and sparked so much of the findings and work that eventually became, you know, pre-modern mental health. One of the comments that we got from the actual uh, the event itself was from um, a brother who actually wrote a really long post. It was a response. He's saying, you know, he's, I'm really surprised that you've mentioned Al-Balkhi, you mentioned Al-Fazina, you mentioned all these examples, but yet you haven't mentioned any actual concrete examples from the prophet himself when he was talking about mental health, right? And I, you know, and I got his point because to you, you were talking about it from an actual medical perspective. You were talking about it from, and these are, uh, I guess, really practitioners, if you think about them, right? How did the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam show us examples of taking care of the mental health? The Prophet had an immense amount of work related to what today we would call psychological well-being and mental health in today's terminology. There are so many stories. Let me tell you one that I think for me really um, has always. It was you read the hadith literature. We all do, right? We're we're exposed to the hadith literature, but we don't always necessarily tie in the mental health. I'll share with you. A couple, at least, so to, mm-hmm. to to alleviate whatever you know um, concerns this brother had, and others who may be listening, right? So there's a, a wonderful narration we've all read it, I'm sure, where the Prophet sallallahu alaihi um, visiting often. He, there's certain families that he was visiting often. One of them was the family of Abu Umair, and the hadith is very short. We probably all know it, where he says to him, "Ya Abu Umair, ma right? Oh, Abba mm-hmm. Umayr, what, what did the bird do? And as he's referring to the little bird, he's referring to Abba Umayr, who was a small, young Sahabi at the time, young kid, um, whose pet bird had passed away. Mm-hmm. And Abba Umayr, he went, he, the Prophet وسلم, with all that he had, you know, responsibilities-wise, when he entered into the home to do, you know, you know, all that he has had is on his mind for the ummah, notices the little boy, notices he's upset, notices that he's, and he asks a family member, why is Abba Umayr upset? And they tell him his pet died. And he takes mm. the time to literally go to Abu Umayr, console him, talk to him. And then the way the hadith, they say that there are at least 50 ahkam or legal rulings that have been derived from this one small hadith, all from prophetic, you know, etiquette wow. and adab, right? And what's mm. important here is that he didn't tell, he didn't shame him. He didn't just say to him the typical, quote unquote, imam response. And I, I'm yeah. in that category, so I could say this, right? You know, we normally would say things like, you know, those of us who are trained in religious teachings, we'd often say, you know, inshallah khayr, it'll be fine. There are more pets out there in the world. (laughs) All these Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, kind of comments that we normally would say. And like, you know, Allah Allah will give you something more. But he actually got down to his level, figured out what was wrong, Mm -hmm. you know, talked to him, and then did not try to chastise him tell him or console him in a way that was in these typical ways that we normally would affirmed mm. the emotions he was having. And then he turned it. He didn't say, what did you do to the bird? He said, what did that bird do? Right. Mm. Even that small kind of inversing of how he said it is really important here to recognize emotions mm. and to allow for something and for allow for that space. I, uh, I'm going to tell you something, Mike, my, my one of my kids, uh, um, we, we had a, a pet. We had a, a, an actual, uh, like a bunny, right? And the bunny died. And um, it, it, it was, it just happened. Like we literally got the actual bunny for this pandemic because we just kind of wanted like, because we're locked down at home. We thought, you know, mm-hmm. having a pet would be a good thing to have. And um, and he died. And, uh, you know, I, I posted about it because I was just, I wasn't trying to make fun of it or anything like that, but I, because I was really actually saddened by it. And I'm going to tell you why I wasn't saddened because of it dying, but I was really saddened because I couldn't alleviate the pain from my kids. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, sometimes like, 
like like your kids, like you can make them feel better sometimes, right? You know, what I mean? like like lots of times as parents, right? There's always this control over. Okay, I have control over things. When my kid is upset about something, there is something that I can do to make them feel better about it. And um, you know, I have a 12 year old, I have an eight year old, and I and I have five year old. And a two-year-old, a three-year-old at that time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and they were just devastated, like yes. about this bunny, you know what I mean? And then I couldn't remove the, the like the pain, right? And I think my wife told me, she's like, she's like, oh my god, you cried, you know? Because I really wanted to protect these kids, and I just, I just couldn't do anything about it. And then, and they went through like a hard time for like a week. Like the, the my my five-year-old Omar, for instance, he just, he just wouldn't speak to anyone. He was really, really upset. He didn't even actually want to come to the burial, I guess, really ritual, but. What I want to come to here is like when I posted about it on my social media, uh, because that's just kind of how I share things with my family, a lot of people mocked me. Mm. They're like, oh, like, what do you want us to do? Uh, some people, I don't know, I don't know if you're Egyptian. I think you're, you're background Egyptian. Uh, you know, one of them was like, hey, man, I don't know if you know or not, but Egyptians make a really mean, like, uh, like uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, with rabbit meat and stuff. And I laughed about it a little bit, but. I just thought about this hadith that you were mentioning right now about the Prophet It's not something that you actually want to say, right? Well, like you really want to take care of the mental health of his companions around him, especially these ones who are young. Any other examples do you have? Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this is the month of Rabi'a al-Awwal speaking of the Prophet wasallam, And I, I have to tell you, if we spend time talking about all the various incidents in the Prophet's life, وسلم, in which he absolutely focused on the overall well-being of a person, including the, what today we would call, again, the mental health of the person, their emotional, mm. psychological well-being. We would not finish today's conversation. Mm. I'll share yeah. with you another. It's really pointed. I'm telling you, everyone reads these hadith. They're in the Sahih books of hadith, but they don't necessarily always make the connection, like this Abba Umayr discussion. Yeah. There's another hadith speaking of Rabi al-Awwal, and this is the, the month in which the Prophet ﷺ was born in, and uh, many people are reading the Shama'il of Imam al-Tirmidhi, right, about the characteristics of the Prophet ﷺ. And in one of the hadith, um, it talks about how the Prophet ﷺ was approached by a woman who asked him to speak she wanted. She had a concern or a question that she wanted him to speak to her about, and he says to her, "Sallallahu um, pick any street in Medina, and I will meet you there to speak with you." Yeah, mm. it's a beautiful narration. It's it, there's so many things we can learn from it. Everything from how women were treated, everything from how it was comfortable and easy for people to walk up to the Prophet Sallallahu But in the in the description of the hadith, in the the seat of it, um, the 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 scholars indicate that this was not an just a woman of Medina, this was actually a person who was experiencing a mental health illness. Mm. And the Prophet ﷺ didn't shoo her away, didn't say to her, to his other Sahaba, okay, you all deal with her, right? Didn't say, you know, oh, inshallah, another day, another time. He said, any street, any time, any place, I will go meet with you. Mm. To me, again, someone trained in both the deen and as, as a psychiatrist, I look at that and I say, subhanAllah, that is what we call the sunnah of our Prophet mm. That's how you reduce stigma and take away shame. And you don't just like offhandedly brush away, you know, those who are most in need in our communities, subhanAllah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, and obviously, so this kind of like understanding for the importance of mental health, uh, you know, was passed on to the companions and passed on also to the actual um, scholars that came after them. I mean, you've mentioned some of these, and I, and I don't want to repeat this again because I want people to actually go and, and watch this uh, this event stuff that you've had here. Really amazing uh, news uh, and, and, and stories from Al-Balkhi, uh, Messina, uh, even Ibn Taymiyyah and, 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 and um, his student, right, uh, Ibn Al-Qayyim. When, when, and I just, this is really the loaded question here, when did we lose track of of the importance? And I mean, right now, if, when you talk to Muslims, and, and I'll just say this to you. So when you talk to young Muslims or you just general population of people, uh, we are really enthused about like like our um, our political might that we used to have back in the days or our historical or, mm-hmm. or like, you know what I'm saying? Like we, we know all about all oh, the battles. We know we used to rule Spain. We like these things that we know about. But when we talk about, for instance, okay, the importance of scientific findings, like this, uh, the scientific greatness that we actually used to have, nobody knows a lot of details. What happened, Dr. Rania? SubhanAllah, you know, I'm, I'm in the same boat of you of what on earth happened, because t- to be honest with you, even the uncovering of some of this heritage, literally like 
I feel like dusting off the dust of time to even find uh. some of these findings. I mean, what have we talked about with Belkhi? Even the even the realization that we were the first in history, probably, Wallahu ta'ala alam, until someone proves otherwise, to actually create psychiatric hospitals and wards. Like, this does not come out of nowhere, as we talked about in the, over the, you know, the program over the weekend. It doesn't come out of nowhere, and it's not something that um, happened by accident. I really believe it's by design, and it was the impetus and sparked by the Prophet Muhammad and by Islam and by this notion, another speaking of the Prophet and his ahadith and, and his teachings, right? Where he says, you know, where he, he says, you know, this, you know, tadaw, like seek out treatment because Allah is going to send cures with every illness. And that's what the scholars did. So now to your question, as in what happened after, there are so many things to say here, subhanAllah. And we probably don't have time for the whole history lesson, if you will. Mm -hmm. But definitely, definitely, we have to think about the social political factors that went into, you know, when you think about well, the golden ages, and I have to say, and I'm going to say this, and I keep on saying this every time I speak about this, that people want to limit, especially Orientalist uh, teachers, teachings of Islam, want to limit the golden age to like, you know, the 13th century, 15th century, yeah. nothing past it. When the reality is, the golden age was from the start of Islam all the way through until the fall, of course, of the Ottoman Empire. But mm -hmm. that entire time was golden. It just changed locations depending on where the seat of power was and the seat of knowledge was in the Muslim world, right? Mm -hmm. And over time, unfortunately, as we know, the collapse of that Muslim Ummah had a lot to do with, you know, the um, the colonization that ended up happening, the colonial powers that came into the field, and unfortunately, bringing in with them a very secular view of everything, of including health and mental health, right? And if you take, for example, you know, think about, I'll take, I'll use the country of Egypt, for example, since we brought it up earlier, but you think okay. about when colonization came to Egypt, right? Think about like 1849, right? And this concept of co uh, the, the colonial standards being the best standards and taking out the Arabic language literally from the universities and the colleges and putting in foreign languages instead and bringing their books and their understandings and replacing them with our Turath, right? Our mm. historical works. And so our ideas um, and all that work that went into it starts to go by the wayside and favored for something that's quote unquote modern and modern being better, right? European mm. being better. And this is a great problem because then you start to lose some of the great advances that we had made, the great strides yeah. that we made over time. And this is one of actually many, many different reasons. I guess the irony in that comes from the fact that, when, I guess, even it happened in Sudan, where I come from, and so on, where uh, uh, the curriculum be started to become anglicized, right? Because they were saying, mm -hmm. oh, at that time, the reason for it, the logical reason for it was the fact that the, the vast majority of, uh, or the biggest part of the body of knowledge as a whole is written in English. So therefore, what I'm doing is I'm unlocking the actual key of knowledge for you by teaching you in this is in this new language right but this uh, it, it, what it also did is it actually accelerated also like the loss <laughs> of knowledge that's written in our language in the first place as opposed to the other way around um yes as to where the modern muslim today people say this all the time especially when i'm in non-muslim majority conferences or academic places right as an academic somebody in the academy i'm always teaching in non-muslim spaces yeah. and when i say these things the immediate response is but we work with muslims like modern day muslims with mental health yeah. and i think the psychiatrist and they say do they know about their own history and i uh, likely not you know yeah. and that how do you how Inshallah. Sorry, go ahead. Keep going. I was just saying that needs to change, inshallah, and that's yeah. what I'm going to do here. A really interesting question that you actually like. How how are you treated as a Muslimah in this field? Like you're like you're. I don't even know what the word that you would say, but like you're you're projecting Muslimah. Like you're you 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 you're uh, your hijabi first. People can actually know immediately the moment that you walk in a room that you're a practicing Muslim. How how are you treated? Maybe the word you're looking for is unapologetic. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And may Allah protect us in It's it's hard. It's been a long journey. It's been a journey fraught with many difficulties. I'm not going to try to, you know, make it all rosy because it has not been. There have been wonderful people, many of whom are not Muslim, who have made the space um, for me to be able to do some of this work and climb in this way, if you will. But it has mm. not been it's not been easy. Um, the, the sheer amount of Islamophobia and misunderstandings and the more um, the work becomes visible and the more 
it happens, it's, it's, it's alarming. Do you know what I mean? And it's part of, I realize, and you, when you come into the space and I'm speaking to everybody who's coming into uh, hoping to pursue kind of an academic career, these are the pros and cons, right? This is part of the journey that, you know, you're going to be attacked because, you know, alhamdulillah, that's just the, the era in which we live. Yeah. Has it gotten easier or harder? In some ways, in some regards, it's gotten easier, more that there's traction. It's not, alhamdulillah, just me. There's a whole emerging field of Islamic psychology with many great researchers and writers, people really trying to go to the origins of Islam, to integrate it from the ground up, from the actual sources. So there are folks who I call, uh, particularly I think about the Khalil Center that I'm affiliated with, mm. you know, what we call dual trained, like myself. They've trained in the classical traditional Islamic sciences and also in psychology and mental health or psychiatry. And they're, they're kind of integrating the two worlds together. And that's been wonderful. So in some ways, it's been help- helpful in that way. Also, the field of psychology has been changing. Ten years ago, you know, when even trying to speak up of what they used to call cultural psychiatry or just trying to come at it from some other angle that, you know, even if you don't want to say religion or faith, even that was really, you know, kind of like <laughs> yeah. negatively and not made space for, especially in institutions where I am in like Stanford, where it's very biologically heavy. Um, mm. you know, if, you can't, if you can't prove it by research and replicate it on an MRI, it doesn't exist, that kind of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a hard thing, but the field as a whole has been changing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the, now that you mentioned the Khalil Center, I actually do want to tell you this story because I, I think it's just so important because one of the, the, the days when I actually kind of like thought about this as, as like a, as like such a cool field to be in, uh, I was invited to a, uh, an interfaith um, event and the interfaith event, it was, a, it was actually organized by a couple of African pastors. They actually had an African um, church. Uh, but the two pastors of the university, which was really interesting to me, the two pastors had, both of them had PhDs in psychology in something very, very specific. So one of them, the actually one who invited me, she, her, her actual, I think, I think she said her dissertation was on actual postpartum depression support specifically Mm-hmm. Uh, for African women living in a diaspora, nice. And I was like, that doesn't seem like you can write a. It doesn't seem like you can write a. Like, I mean, what can you write about? I, I just legitimately asked her that question. But then, when she started to speak to me about this, I just realized that there was such a shortage in the Muslim community um, for faith leaders in actually understanding, in reality what do humans need in terms of mental health, in terms of uh, emotional support that they actually have? I don't know. Can you, what, what like, why? <laughs> yes. But why, why, why have the Christians, for instance, got it so earlier yes. on and we're still kind of lagging? Like, I mean, Khalil Center just started last year in Toronto. Toronto is, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's one of the most dense uh, yes. uh, cities in the West in terms of Muslims, right? Like, like religion just started. Yeah, this is, this, this is yeah. to me, it's just, I mean, we did have some other religions that are small. Itself is about 10 years old, but we've just, yeah. just entered into still Canada, late. Alhamdulillah. Yeah. Yes. You know, I, I, I have a lot to say about that. And I have, I have to say that there's something about the Islamic leadership structure as well. And I'm speaking, you know, you and I both are folks who have trained in the Islamic sciences, taught the Muslim community, right? Um, actively in our roles as people who have trained. But, you know, when you think about this larger, um, you know, what is the training that imams go through? And you compare it to our, our Christian uh, community, the Christian community compared to the Jewish community, you'll see that they have, for example, as you mentioned, the Christian community, they have, you know, literally missions. They call them missions, right? Like actual people whose their role is mental health within Christian pastor, being a Christian mm-hmm. pastor, their role is the mental health mission. Like that's actually yeah. the role and you look at junior rabbis the rabbi structure you have the senior rabbis and junior rabbis and so on and 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 you have ones who are focused on youth and ones who are focused on mental health and ones who are focused on the woman and and it's just such an extensive amount of support because it's beyond just the um the person who leads the prayer who has a beautiful voice in qira and recitation beyond the person who can answer some of the questions of the of fiqh and such it actually is a very um it's a community center as most of our Masajid are here in the West. They're a community center and have mm. all of Or they support. should be. Hmm? I said, or they should be. Or they should be. Uh, yeah. Yes, or they yeah. should be. And mm-hmm. as such, 
it needs multiple types of leaders, which only now the Muslim community, for example, is awakening to, oh, by the way, we should have an imam and a youth director, right? Mm. Like realizing these are different roles. They can't be the same person playing it, right? Mm. Oh, and by the way, you know, and this is where I hope the next step will be. We should have a mental health counselor or somebody who is, that's their, their job, you know, yeah. as well, and so on yeah. and so forth. Shouldn't there be uh, some sort of training that actually happens? I mean, so, you, so you've mentioned actually like gone into um, and you've studied abroad and so have I actually. But I don't remember ever, for instance, getting any sort of training about mental health or like, I mean, not even not even mental health. I don't actually remember. I mean, slightly like there are. So, uh, so yeah, I won't lie. There are certain shoe who spoke to us about. Uh, how to reach to people based on their mental understanding and their mental capacity and their emotional capacity. Like, like, but this is like a part of the rhetoric studying. It wasn't even a part of the actual, <laughs> like the teachings themselves, right? Mm -hmm. In a sense, what what kind of uh, what kind of education would you, for instance, suggest for imams and and or even as as part of the uh, leadership? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's a holistic uh, um, training. I would hope that one day in in our traditional classical sources, imagine imagine having something that's the history of, right? And it actually wow. is the part because I think we would. I mean, how I'll back up here for just a moment and quickly say how else? How did I end up coming to even the discovery of Balkhi sources or so on? It was because I was originally trained in the classical. Arabic and in the classical writings, right? The books of fiqh and hadith and tafsir and so on that we all study is yeah. written in the same eras as these books as well. So mm -hmm. for me, it wasn't very difficult. It, they're, they're difficult, don't get me wrong. They're difficult to read and process. Yeah. But it wasn't foreign to me because I had that already, that lingo and that understanding of reading. So I feel like if anybody, imams would be able to actually access some of those, that turaf that we've been speaking about, that, that yeah. beautiful treasure that we have in terms of our writings. But let's just say this. If the modern-day um, Islamic uh, scholar, imam, has gone through the traditional core sciences that we're all familiar with, right? And then they're now serving in a Muslim community center here in the West. There are many other gaps that need to be filled. One of them is definitely mental health first aid. And, and speaking of the Khalil Center, we've actually developed like a full eight-hour, full-day certified certification in um, specifically for imams in knowing mental health first aid for Muslims. It's a very, oh. very specific training. There are other mental health first aid trainings. This one is actually written for imams. And the training is actually done by one person who is a mental health professional and a person who is an imam or hmm. sheikha, if you will, somebody who yeah. is able to, yeah. to, that way you can speak the lingo of both, you know, of both in yeah. the training. What, what happens in a training? So I, I'm a former imam. So what, uh, I mean, and I also, also when it comes to like, I think you call it first aid. So like, like, let's take me through a CPR. Let's do an exercise. Okay. If you don't mind. Uh, <laughs> what would be. That's actually part of the training. There's actually role playing in it. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So that's wonderful. So actually let's do the exercise first of all. So um, what, what kind of things would imams need to understand? So first of all, this would be the first thing. So like, if you just give me like a list of what kind of things would imams need to actually understand, um, uh, you know, as, as part of their training? Well, one of the very first things that we do is we go through kind of the, the backdrop because one of the first, first places that I feel like people get stuck, and I know I was stuck, and I'll tell you, I'm going to be very, very open and honest with you. You asked mm. about how I was brought up and so on. I mm. was that kid, like probably many in our community, who didn't take a single psychology course in college because mm. I thought this was all, you know, silly stuff right? Mm. This is not for Muslims. This is something, This it's unbecoming of Muslims even to take such mm. a right? And subhanAllah, where, you know, Allah humbles you to put you where you are today, mashallah, right? Mm. But nevertheless, it's really important. The very first step is exactly um, destigmatizing and explaining what is mental health in the first place. That actually yeah. there is biological aspects. There are genetic aspects. This is not all just a matter of weak faith or laziness or some of the other things that we normally attribute, you know, people feeling sad or anxious to, right? Mm. That's the first, there's, these are different modules that we go through. This is one of the modules. Then there's mm. the module, of course, we talk about. So the first thing, sorry, so just, just so I can actually kind of have it in some sort of perspective. Yeah. So the first thing you're saying is uh, destigmatizing it. So it's normal. It's something that happens to people. It's just like having a headache. Like you just have to kind of be able to see it, I guess. It's also, it's, 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 it's it's actually explaining the different modules. It's it's um it's explained in the different modules. We explain the different factors that uh, that bring mental health conditions to people. So. 
but it's, you know, we actually go through, here's some of the biology, here's some of the genetics, and here are some of the environmental factors, like all the stress mm. people have the pandemic and the upcoming for the U.S. election season, for example, it doesn't have to be a biological condition, but people are feeling it because it's environmental. And yeah. there's also the spiritual aspects as well. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's good. That's the first thing. Okay. What else? What would be next? Then we kind of go through and we go through some of the history as we discussed and we've been discussing for a while, kind of our Islamic heritage. We talk about that quite a bit. That's always a great point of interest for a lot of people who have been trained. Yeah, it's, it's so inspiring, right? Like, like, it, like the moment you start with the history, you're like, oh my God, like, this is so, this is so cool. I, I this like, this is how I actually see. So the first time I actually heard you talk about this was in the conference, uh, I think a Muslim mental health conference that happened in mm -hmm. Toronto uh, a couple of years ago when we were still able to see normal people. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah and, and it was like so exciting because it wasn't just you, it was you. And it was like, everybody who talked, kept throwing all these names. I'm like, what, like, what are they, what are they talking about? And then, and I remember like, as, as I was going through this, so, one thing that actually intrigued me at that time as well, and I think it's just to add to your point, is that these people whom you spoke about as, I would call them like, uh, they weren't only like uh, uh, good at that, like the mental health fields. They were also like Islamic scholars as well, right? Like, it's not like, it's not like you can say, oh, Al-Balqi, yeah, he was good at mental health, but he didn't know anything about Islam anyway, so who cares? Like, you know what I mean? He Ooh, was like, yes, yes. Th that's what I'm saying. So it was really yes. exciting for a lot of shiuch and a lot of uh, imams. It's like, okay, these are people who knew what they were doing at that time, but they also delved into other stuff, right? Yes. And they okay. weren't perfect. And I know anybody listening to this and saying, but they weren't perfect. You're right. They weren't. And some yeah. of them, but many of them, and this is what's but beautiful about <laughs> the scholars, the scholars who are what we call encyclopedic scholars, right? Mm. Every time you read one of their biographies, Belchi included, every single time you read one of their biographies, it starts off with, and he was trained in the Islamic sciences early in life. He memorized the Quran, and then he started to study X, Y, Z. You know, yeah, yeah. Actually, this, this is this is cool because uh, if you talk about those times, even within the actual Christian field, you do notice that a lot of the actual medical doctors, so on and so forth, those were like a big deal at those times. They were also kind of trained in theology, right? I don't know if this is like, if this was just a thing, I guess, like you, you study, start with theology, you start with religion, I guess that's the important thing as you're growing up, right? And then you kind of delve into other knowledge, right? Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. And, so okay. stigmatizing, and oh, sorry, go ahead. The modules, you wanted to know about the other yeah, modules. Yes, yeah. Yeah, so this this concept, so we talk about that kind of the, the integrative frame that we've been talking about, Islamically integrative frame of psychology, so that also the imam who's not sure, and I, and I have a, I, can I share with you a story first and I'll tell you sure. the three modules. The, um, <laughs> the first, I think it was the first time I did this training, it was uh, actually a lot of my own colleagues at a, you know, a, and, <laughs> and they were all people who were teaching the Islamic sciences, the whole group in the room. Mm. And one of the imams in particular, as you mentioned, is one of our, is one of the main imams of our, uh, you know, our community, someone who is respected generally and so on. And he came in and he came in with his laptop. Everyone else is sort of listening and trying to engage in an eight-hour training. Uh -uh. But this particular imam, mashallah, opened up his laptop and was just doing whatever he was doing. He wasn't really focusing at all. And, and I have permission to tell the story. It's kind of a funny story, but an important story. Yes. And, he, um, and as the first hour passed, he's just typing away, doing his own work. And as the second hour came in, you could see he started to look above, you know, over his laptop, kind of like listening to us closely. By the time mm. we entered into the third hour, he shut the laptop and he was really intently listening. To yeah. Mm. You know? And at yeah. the very end of the day, after eight hours of this, um, towards the end of the day, he actually opened up the laptop again. And I thought, oh, subhanAllah, you know, just writing away, writing away on the laptop. Yeah. And at the end, when we did like a conclusion, how did everyone do? How do you feel? So on, they like, you know, got some suggestions and feedback. He said, I'm not going to lie to you. I tried everything possible not to attend today's event because mm. I've been an imam in the community for so long. What possibly do I not know or have not counseled? And he said, what I realized today is that you don't know what you don't know and how many people yeah. have I counseled over time and said actually things that are probably without realizing, without meaning, more harmful, yeah. hurtful and useful. Yeah. And um, what he was doing at the end of the day actually was he was firing away and writing to all of his other imam friends because we had a training the next day again, a full eight hour training. And that next day, over 40 imams from the Bay Area showed up. All mm. showed up because yeah. this one imam said, you have to go to this training. It's important, yeah. Right? Yeah. I did a very similar story to what I shared with you at the beginning of it. I, I've actually served as an imam in the community here for about 10 years as well. And uh, 
and, and and though I knew that mental health is important and I knew that it's real and, and, and I knew that there is, you know, like, like I knew it was real. Right. But because I had no training in it, I kind of underestimated, I guess, um, the, like the power of the office of the imam or like the image of it or how the community itself sees it. Because mm-hmm. I, for instance, I remember like, I, I, I'm t- I'll, I'll tell you this right now, before as an imam, I would never go to an imam and tell him, listen, I'm having anxiety issues. I would, I just wouldn't do that. Wasn't a thing that I would have done. First of all, I'm African. I don't do that anyways with anybody. Like I would, I would even go to a doctor. You know what I mean? I would just, I would just, you know, my wife says to me, she's like, she's like, you know, you could, you'd literally die of depression before you go and tell anybody. You know what I mean? Like we just don't do that. Uh, it's a terrible thing. But when people would come to me as an imam and they would speak and, and, and I know this now after uh, I've actually been to a couple of like workshops and so on and so forth, where they would be describing like textbook, like uh, depression textbook, um, uh, uh, like anxiety uh, symptoms, right? And, and and all I would give them is just really like like nonsensical answers. Like I, mm. I would have, you know, honestly, I am really fearful. Like I'm not going to lie. I am truly fearful that I may have turned people away from the religion as a whole, right? Be- because they just wouldn't show up anymore, right? Where he's like this mm. imam who, who, who encourages us encourages us to be like better Muslims, to be this, to be this, to be this. He can't even answer the simplest answer on, on to why do I feel this? And and sometimes I just don't know because I just didn't know, right? Like some people, so for instance, I used to always have, um, this is an issue that I, I had for a long time, which was with the youth, Francis, and their uh, identity crisis that they would go through. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is, it's really, I grew up in this country as well. You know what I mean? So I knew I've been through these issues, but then when I just give them answers, because I don't even know how I turned, like, I don't know what happened in my life that kind of flicked me and brought me the other way. Um, but a lot of the kids would just ask questions about like, how do I belong? And, and why do I feel so anxious? And this code switching that I'm going through in my life is just so tiring me. Like, it's just, it's like, it's draining the life out of me. And then, my answer to them is like, oh, make istighfar, brother. You know, just make sure you have uh, friends who are Muslims. Uh, make sure you come to the masjid regularly. You know, did you come for Fajr this morning? You know what I mean? Like, go ahead and hang out with your mother and dad. And these are not real answers. Like, they're just, and, it's, and they're the best that I could give them. Mm-hmm. But they're just not real answers, like because they don't understand why. It's like, like, and it, and it would come across like at any given any time. You don't have to. You don't have to be a person who's. Uh, like very well learned to know that the person in front of you is just like just saying things just to get you out of his face. You, you see what I'm saying? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and I feel and I feel for you very strongly because it's you know and it's and I and I really I can't tell you how much I appreciate your reflections and kind of thinking mm. back now, subhanAllah, and, and the commitment to to do better moving forward, mashallah. And I think anybody who's listening to this, I hope they're, you know, really feeling this, This we're both in the room being vulnerable right now, like actually saying, mm. hey, there are times I think I really messed up and I really hope that going forward, um, it will get better and it will be better. We commit to do better as a community, inshallah ta'ala. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's why we're having this conversation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I love you for that intention and that mm-hmm. commitment, ya rabbil alameen. Yeah. One of the um, things that I actually wanted to talk about, which is re- really important, which is, I guess, really a, a critique that we've always had when it comes to the leadership and the imams of the community as well, because I, w- I do want to I do want to talk about how do you how do you how do you educate the community about this? Right. Which is the fact that our imams, most of them, the vast majority of them are um, students of knowledge who go through learning the religion. They've, you know, spend a lot of time. They like, they, you know, they 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 give a lot out of them. But the moment they graduate, they graduate as the leaders of the community. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. You see what I'm saying? So this is an issue that I've always always had an issue with because the moment you are 25 years old and then everybody in the community listens to you and then you stay in that position for 25 years, yes. 25 more years, and now you're at 50 years old, there is nothing, no one is teaching you anything. That's right. How do you break that down? Mashallah. I mean, I can't tell you how much I thought about this point and thank you for bringing it up. I really actually hope that everything we're saying here, I just want to pause and say this. I hope that when people hear you and I, inshallah, speaking about this, that it's actually a healing to them because it's things that they have felt over time, but because of the leadership structure, it is so hard to say and, um, but it's, it's felt subhanAllah, but I love that this commitment to lifelong learning. You've heard this term, right? Because I, I work for myself now. I actually don't care. I can actually just say whatever I really want. Ah, 
Ah, I see, I see. Alhamdulillah. But yeah. I appreciate that nevertheless. <laughs> yeah. um, the lifelong learning piece, I think, is really crucial because, and you're absolutely right, you, you categorized it correctly, where it's like you spent all of these early years studying and getting your degrees and so on in the Islamic sciences, let's say if you're an imam, any other field is the same, actually, but many of the other fields require continuing education credits. Literally, mm -hmm. whether in medicine, we have to do our, you know, CME or continue medical education credits, so on. If people were in psychology, it's CE and other fields, it continuing education. And you cannot actually continue being an imam, like, you know, or being a physician, let's say, for another 25 years without every few years having to certify that you have been up to speed with the field, mm. with the field right? Yeah. Um, SubhanAllah, the same needs to happen in the religious circles. Mm. And these trainings would be a perfect example of that. This would be a perfect example of saying, this is something the community needs. Let's go ahead and help you bridge that gap, of, of, fill the gap that you don't have. Let's say, for mm -hmm. example, another key one other than mental health would be like dialogue training. Yeah. Who receives any sort of dialogue? Tra it's a real science in itself. Yeah. And you look at Christian pastors, they're taking dialogue trainings, right? Yeah. SubhanAllah. Yeah. Um, another one would be- Conflict, conflict management. Conflict um, management. Is it like, yeah. You know, handling a nonprofit. So many of our community centers are nonprofits. Handling financial, you know, institutions. Knowing how to. I mean, there are so many things that can lifelong learning. Yeah. Right? So yeah. Um, and that, and if anybody should be at, the, I always say this line. If anybody should be at the front, at the forefront of this, it should be the Muslims because it's our tradition that says, yeah. well, you know, from the cradle to the grave, right? That's our mm -hmm. tradition. Yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Wonderful. So. Um, one of the things, because now we're actually taking a lot of your time, <laughs> and okay. I'm sorry for that. I, I, I have to say one more quick thing is that we forgot mm -hmm. to see all three modules, and somebody listening is going to say, oh, okay. why didn't we finish? What's, what's missing? Yeah, yeah, what's missing? Okay, perfect. Because <laughs> I told the story, mashallah. But I'll just quickly say, I told you module one, right? The kind of the, the layout of and really explaining, destigmatizing de mental health, explaining the Islamic integrative model. But then module two is actually really key for our imams as well, because it mm -hmm. talks about the clergy you know, the class of imams, right? The clergy rights and their responsibilities. This is really key. I'm talking about ethical, legal, mandated reporting, because as an imam, you are a mandated reporter. We, this group of us, are mandated reporters when somebody in the community comes up and says, I'm being abused, right? And many of us don't even know the legal implications of what you're supposed to mm. say or not say. Boundaries is another one. What your role, what your limitations of the role, like what you can do up to a certain point, and then there's a limitation. And after that, you refer to the professionals, right? Mm. Um, and that's key. These are key, key concepts that I don't think anybody actually ever, um, just, by, just by the regular Islamic studies programs, these are things are not necessarily taught. So essentially, you know, these modules and the third is really talking about how to screen. How, when, when someone comes up to you, how do you screen and ask, how, I even ask the proper questions to figure out, are we talking about domestic violence? Is this a suicidal person? Are we talking about a crisis response? Like, what is it exactly? And then we bring in Islamic law. Since so many of our shiuch have studied fiqh, right? We actually bring in Islamic law. This is why it's a very different first aid training than the typical one, because yeah. we bring in the Islamic legal rulings and say, this is the kind of responsibility ethically, legally you have, both Islamically and in the, the law of the land in which you're living. Which you're living in, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wonderful. What? Uh, so, so those are the three, I guess, really um, modules that you're talking about here. So, and this is um, just a quick question. This is actually done through all of Khalid Center. So this can actually happen in Toronto as well. Yes, yes. Any yeah, any so community right. anywhere can, across the US and Canada can um, request this and we can do this training for them. And is it is it costly? Just, I mean, just I guess really- I don't know the, it should have a cost to it. I know that much, but I don't mm -hmm. know the exact numbers. Uh, as it should be. It, it, and I was actually going to just say that this is one of those places where as institutions, we need to put our money where our mouth is essentially yeah. <laughs> and actually yeah, yeah. things that are, you know, important trainings like this for our personnel. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, I, I don't, so this is, this was good, good because I, I really introduction to it. I guess kind of want to get out of this right now. Right. Uh, there's a pandemic 2020 has been a really difficult year. Uh, how, what kind of practical steps or, or strategies or even advice do you give to people to keep um, mentally healthy? Because I mean, really physically healthy people will just say to you, eat the right things, exercise, 
uh, and sleep on time, right? Like those are like those are the three things that you know what I mean. Yes. Is there is there like a like a list like that that would that, that that we can use for mental health? Definitely, there's a list, and I think the list, you know, depending on what's happening right now, we're in the midst of a pandemic, so the list is very much my list right now for you would be very much um, uh, pandemic based. But I think a lot of what I'm going to say actually works even outside of the pandemic too. Uh -huh. But there's a certain the first thing I'm going to say, which is actually really important, is applicable always mental health wise, and that is the idea of like talking and listening, which is basically um, so many, like you mentioned, you said it beautifully. And I want to just say, it's not just a Muslim thing and it's not just an African or an Arab or a Desi thing. It's actually so many cultures and so many people have the exact same thing. We don't quote unquote air our dirty laundry. Yeah. So first advice I'm going to give goes against all of that because what I'm saying to say is it's really important that we actually do talk and that we do listen, but who you talk to is important. I will agree yeah. with that point. It's not just Hayala, it's not just whoever, right? It's, 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 it's very important that like you find the people, and this comes from our tradition, that you actually find those who are considered to be, um, you know, like, like the Quran speaks about, you know, right? Like, like the people uh, of knowledge, right? Uh -huh. So ask them, like Quran says, speak to them, right? If you don't know. And so you have to identify who are the people of knowledge in your community. And for many people, at least on the mental health side, I mean, this would be the professionals. This is why they trained the years of training that they trained. Um, and if I could just say one thing here quickly, just just so you know, you know, uh, one time I think my family and I tried to count how many years to become a psychiatrist in the years I've done, and we, th we think we counted 14 or 15 years total, right, of just pure training. And for the psychologist, you know, and therapist, even, even a math, I want to say this, I'm doctorate level, but even a master's level person, you know, they go through after their college years, they'll go through two years of master's, yes, but then to become a licensed clinician, at least here in the U.S., it's another 3,000 hours of supervised clinical work, which amounts mm -hmm. to about another three years worth, right? So a person who's today a licensed therapist, right, it's not a small thing. It took them supervised hour by hour, five, six years of training to mm -hmm. be able to listen and give you that therapeutic ear to know what they need to say and how to help you when you say it, right? Mm -hmm. So the, the people of knowledge, right? Yeah. Talking when needing to talk and listening is a really key kind of example, um, uh, advice I want to give for our community. So often we, I don't want to say we listen half-heartedly, but I want to say that we don't necessarily always know how to listen, you know, uh, like think of the Aba Umair kind of example, like many, mm -hmm. many as parents, many of us just sort of say, okay, okay, later, later, okay, it's not a big deal. Come on, get over it. <laughs> but that's not the kind of listening, definitely not in a pandemic, right, that is needed. The people who really have the kind of fears of, am I going to get sick? Am I going to get ill? Is my family member, the elders, you know, what's going to happen here in the U.S. after elections? I mean, all of this is happening, right? So that's my first piece of advice, inshallah, um, to, to, to all of us. And then I want to say, you know, we have other steps here that I think we need to do. Um, and, it, and I'm drawing, by the way, I have to say, I'm drawing everything from our tradition, everything I'm going to say here, you yeah. know, everything from the Islamic tradition. This concept of tolerating uncertainty is my next step on the list. And what that means is, and we've done some research studies on this um, with the Yaqeen Institute and, and the Muslim Mental Health Lab here at Stanford, and we've done some really key research in COVID-19. It's been very interesting, 9,000 people Took these surveys, and what we it, sorry, I just want to I just want to uh, uh, ask a question. You call it tolerating uncertainties. Is that uncertainty, what you said? yes. Okay. Tolerance of uncertainty, or okay. they call it uncertainty tolerance, or some people might call it uncertainty intolerance, depending on what it is. But that's but this is everything. It's because everything is uncertain. No? Exactly. Exactly. And again, if anybody should be the best at this, it should be the Muslims because they are at the forefront because they know we are taught that uncertainty is only with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Oh. But how do you tolerate uncertainty? This comes from our hadith, from our, our hadith and the Qur'an, right? We, we talk about how, you know, the hadith that the Prophet sallallahu says, you know, right? Like the, 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 the affairs of the believer and only the believer is all khair. Mm -hmm. When good comes to them, they thank Allah and it's khair. When bad comes to them, affliction comes to them, they're patient and it's khair. It's better for them, mm -hmm. right? And mm -hmm. this kind of um, 
dealing with uncertainty of, I was going to say the research that we did, 9,000 people, Muslims, who took this in COVID-19. And we found that the people who had higher levels of uncertainty tolerance, like they could tolerate uncertainty, right? They were yeah. the ones who were actually doing better in this pandemic. And the people who had more uncertainty intolerance, they couldn't handle it very well. They were 60% more likely to end up with major depressive disorder, clinical depression, right? Is there any sort of, sorry, I was going to say to you, you know, no, knowing is not like doing, I like, I know, like I, I, every Muslim knows of qada and qadr, every, every mu'min, like every Muslim knows that things are in the hands of Allah. Everybody knows like the hadith and so on. And, and this is like, I don't even know, I don't know if you know this or not, but it's like, a, I think they call it the G.I. Joe, uh, like syndrome, right? Like now that you know, you know, knowing is half the battle, but it's, yeah. it really isn't, right? It really is not because it, it it's honestly, is hard, Dr. Rania, when, mm -hmm. when, when I, when I hear someone like, you know, like things are going to, what kind of actual practical strategies do you, do you, do you have? For people to just kind of, I guess, implement that knowledge. To tolerate the uncertainty. Absolutely. Well, here, here's the next one, which is moderating our intake of bad news. People mm. are starting to call this. Some of the studies, one just came out from Stanford uh, earlier this week. It's called doom scrolling. <laughs> You're just scrolling through your feed and it's doom, right? It's just mm. gloom and doom one after another. It's terrible news. And, mm. and you know, the reality is it's not necessarily going to get better <laughs> So mm. in terms of the news, right? They're always going to sensationalize these terrible things. And it's not necessarily getting worse either, by the way. Like, like I studied communication, for instance, and, and we know for a fact that um, like, like news, news, uh, bad news always are, are always supposed to lead. That's just the way that it exactly. works. Exactly. The news yeah. That's just the way it works. Like, that's the way we make money as communication, as, as journalists. You know what I mean? That's, that's how we make money. Uh, but the truth that the, the bad thing about it is that when I used to go to school, for instance, uh, you used to get your news on at nine o'clock, you know what I mean? So once a day at nine o'clock, you hear all the bad news, you go to sleep the next morning. You're just like, <laughs> this, it's the same news that happened yesterday. You're just reading the newspapers now more analyzed, right? So, so it's not getting uh, any better or any worse. And that's, like you said, it's meant to be this way. And I think that's what's important to understand. And I'm glad you're saying that somebody who studied communications knows this, right? Like they know what's, what, what sells essentially and bad news, like you said, sells. And so mm -hmm. it's the kind of thing where what do we need to do? Because we are glued to these phones and now with virtual learning and work, we're on screens nonstop. All but then we're also yeah. on there for social reasons, social media nonstop. So it's just yeah. it's overwhelming, right? So it's, it takes actually quite a bit of time to say, go over there, make wudu, go sit on your prayer rug, put your phone far, far away from you, right? And actually do that reflective, meditative kind of work. And I don't mean just the do yogas and meditations, because talk about practical mm -hmm. Things here, I'm talking about things that are from our Islamic tradition. We have tafakkur, tafakkur. Mm. Right? We have mm. these concepts of sitting down and doing bikr, sitting down and doing actual contemplative, meditative on our prayer rugs in a place that is actually peaceful and quiet, in order to yeah. bring that quiet back to ourselves. Right? Yeah. And this, I guess, and, and this requires work, right? I mean, it, I yeah. think the, the thing is that uh, because we understand the fact that. Uh, for for my physical health, for instance, I actually have to put in work. I have okay. to go into the gym and put in this hour. Uh, okay. I don't think we have that understanding about mental health yet. We think it's just like a state of mind. Like, exactly. like you're a doctor, you have a PhD, like plant that chip in my mind and then let me walk out of here feeling like better, right? There is, it requires work. Yes, exactly. And, and I can't even tell you, thank you so much for bringing that up because um, you said earlier, you know, we know to sleep on time, eat well, you know, exercise. These are all the physical aspects, but just like, and I'm going to bring in Belkhir again, just mm. like his book, you know, back in the 1900s said, you know, you need to literally be able to uh, bring the body and soul together. You need to bring the mind and the body together. This is exactly what we need to as Muslims. It's our tradition. So yes, all of what you said, plus actually taking active steps. I'd like to talk about, and for the woman, this applies, right? This right. concept of atikaf at home, literally doing your atikaf or spiritual seclusion in your home. Of course, the men have to go to the masajid, but nevertheless, this concept of they could do khalwa, they could kind of take some time aside, even if they're men, right? And it's a physical thing. It's not just in your mind. It's you're picking wow. yourself up. And even for the woman, you know, like you stand before that area of the room in which you're going to do your atikaf, even for your five daily prayers. And you say, mm. no way to atikaf. There's a niya, there's an intention to it. Mm. You have a masjidi, right? And you kind of enter into that, that 
temporary masjid space for the woman to do her atikaf. And there she prays, there she does her dhikr, there she reads her Quran. And that seclusion, that like breaking off, which is part of our tradition. And it's the way the Prophet Muhammad, speaking of the Prophet Muhammad himself again, and his actual mental health practices, speaking of him, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, what did he do? We all know Ghar Hira. We all know that he would seclude even before. And this, is, and this is before, yeah, exactly. And during before the actual Islam, yeah. And during and after Nabuwa, wow. right? After prophecy. And this concept of he would every so often break away, even the whole prophecy through, right? He would take some time and exit from the masjid into his home and pray on his own. This is wow. an important concept. We need this. We need that time, that reflective, introspective time, that connecting with God, right? And speaking of, I'll say for those who need kind of numbers and need research to back what I'm saying, the, the, the study that I just told you about the Muslims and COVID study that we're publishing, and I'm very happy that we were able to do that, this huge study of Muslims in COVID. One of the main things we found <laughs> is that those who actually were able to um, uh, connect with God in this way, the connection with God they felt actually increased during the pandemic, were the ones who actually took the time aside to connected mm. with God physically. Do you know what I mean? And actually went into these, um, and it's, it Ramadan came through and a lot of this was very helpful, but now Ramadan has been a past us for several months and we're kind of losing track of these great practices. We do just quote unquote Ramadan, right? So we yeah. need to come back yeah. to that. So, okay. So breaking, breaking off, giving your, yourself your, some time, I guess. And I guess you would always, <laughs> I guess your suggestion would be to, to go to these seclusions without your phone. Without your social media, Absolutely. I guess. Putting it far away. Like you can't do it to dabur and tafakkur with, with, a, with a phone near you, mashallah. Yeah. Right? I mean, this is, I remember this, but but in um, we used to have an imam, actually, who would, uh, during a seclusion, he would he actually would have like a box by uh, in his office for people to get their phones. Uh -huh. and, uh, and then there's one person who would um, basically like be near the actual office. So if a phone is actually ringing, he'd be the one to kind of bring the phone to you because everybody complained at that time. I remember this actually Imam, really well because everybody complained. They said, oh, what if an emergency happens in my house? Like, what if an emergency happened? And, and he used to always say this very funny thing that used to remind my father. He used to say, he says, he says, you guys aren't lawyers. You guys aren't doctors. There is no emergency that should come to you. You know, like, like if you, if somebody is, is sick, they need to call 911. They need to go to the hospital. Or mm -hmm. if someone is in jail, they need to call a lawyer. You guys are none of these. You, you, there's no emergency. There's no emergency that requires your immediate attention at all. Right. And he used to like plant this in their heads where he, where he would say to them, like, and this is before like this whole thing used to happen, right? When we just had text messaging you know like it wasn't like mm -hmm. like the whole world in your hand right but this was his thing at that time and people when i remember when the new phones came oh i have my mushaf in it he would take the phone he would give them like a small little mushaf like well read from this it's better for you you know and he, he like just flipping the actual phone itself okay yeah that's yeah. yeah um uh, i don't have too much time with you um but i do want to ask you about one thing that you actually did mention in the actual sure. uh, talk so that you have which is basically you said there is some people who are sitting there um, differentiating, and I think the words that you use, it's the water, the baby, and the They're out the baby with the bath water, yes. Yes, ma'am. So this clearly indicates to me that there are things that you are worried about within the psychology field itself. Mm -hmm. Give me some examples. Yes, definitely. I, I, and this is why I think we're doing the work we're doing, you know, both at the Stanford Muslim Mental Health Lab. I mean, this is something we have a whole line of research dedicated to just this and mm. the center both. So basically the line of research is called, you know, psycho, basically the frame, the correct psychological frame for Muslims. And what that means is, yes, there are parts of psychology, and I agree with you, and, and this is true, and this is why people, when they sit with a psychologist or a therapist, sometimes they feel like, you know, it's just the, not what they're saying is just sort of passing by, like it's not sticking, it's not working for them. Mm. And part of that is because in our tradition, you know, we, first of all, first of all, um, psychology, modern psychology today is still taught from a, what we call a secular frame. It is literally the concept of you check God at the door or here in the US we have the separation of church and state yeah so mm -hmm. this concept of completely kind of like you don't bring that part that private private part of you which is religion into this secular space but that's mm -hmm. highly problematic for Muslims because this idea yeah. of checking God at the door is not ever going to happen for somebody who is an observant Muslim right mm. And not only that, but in therapy, they also talk about this concept of the third person in the room. I would be that's not third person, you know, but it's like we can say entity. For us, 
that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Meaning that even if the therapist advises us something and says, you, uh, you need to get a divorce right now. Therapists, by the way, don't normally do this. This is not okay. the way therapy work. They actually say, they actually allow, they're supposed to allow the person in therapy to come to their own conclusions. But some people- But they, but they do insinuate. Insinuate, exactly. Some yeah, people think yeah. that actually it's been insinuated this way. And so this is, and for the Muslim, it's like they're not going to make decision on their own. They're going to take mm. it back to Allah wa Rasulah, right? They need to take it back to Allah and figure out whether this is something that is applicable or not. And this is mm. not just marital issues. This could be anything, you know, do this or don't do this. And I worry about frames of therapy that are highly secular like this, that don't make room for religion make room for what we call the whole self i said this the field is changing and it really is people now we're starting give me, to give, me some, give me some is there any sort of examples any sort of stories that you can it, tell it's, it's changing like this concept of bring your whole self into the room is now kind of the the new thing that people are saying and you bring your culture and bring your faith and bring everything mm. into the therapy room this is good mm. because finally you feel like i can actually I'm not stifled. I can actually speak about the things that, where do all these ideas come from? Why do I even wear this hijab? Because I'm obeying Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But if the person, the therapist across from me is looking at me and kind of blaming my religion for it, I'm not going to even open up on about other things that are deeper. Do you see mm. what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and then... And even, and even the other way, sorry, just, just to... Um, and even the other way, even when, when you go to a religious um, uh, counselor, imam, and so on and so forth, and, and you're having... And I've noticed this, right? Where people will come to me, and I know that they're holding back and saying certain things, uh, where people can just say to you, like, if people are having what would they call, like, crisis of faith, right? so they don't tend to say this to imams or to people who are respected within the community itself, right, in fear of this. Is, is that something it, that you... It is. And, and yeah. you're absolutely right. It's a two-way road and it goes both ways. And I think that's where the needing also to kind of like take a step back and, you know, what we call like kind of trigger response. Like you just immediately mm -hmm. say a response quickly. When in reality, so many people, what they need, this is very important. I've actually heard a, a student say this one time and say, I don't need, I'm bringing this issue, but I don't need a teacher right now. I don't need you know, an imam, lecture. Yeah. Lecture. I don't need a lecture right now. What I need is someone to listen to me, right? Mm. to give me space to say what I have to say, even if you don't agree with it. And the reality is when you give that person space, you have more likelihood to actually help them potentially even change for the good. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Mm. That's really difficult to do though. It is. That's why it takes training. That's why it's 14 years of training. <laughs> I was say, like, there's no way I can sit here and 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 listen to someone uh, and not give them my views and my thoughts, right? Like, like, and I guess you 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 can't, right? It's it's a really this this work is very skillful um, work, and it's the kind of work where you're also not going to sit there and just see terrible things happen in front of you and do nothing. It's not mm -hmm. that, to that level either but it's the kind of thing where the person in the room has to make their own decision right mm -hmm. and sometimes people choose wrong the wrong thing right and over time they so, mature and over time so they what change, do you do right you continue to to counsel to help and Just to kind of poke a bit and kind of help a bit yeah. and wait a bit but that's the role you know we at the khalil center i'll kind of end with this kind of concept oh. the, the center is called the khalil center and it was very purposefully named this because the khalil right mm. Right, we, we know Sayyidina yeah. is Khalilullah, right? The yeah. friend of Allah. But the, but it's more than a friend. It's actually a companion. And if you look at the word, the translation from Arabic, mm -hmm. it's the companion who walks on the path with you, helping guide you along the path. Yeah. That's what I see the therapist is. I see that it's actually following in the sunnah of the Prophet وسلم, of how to guide and help. Because there are times, right, where that guidance needs to be something that's a walking along the path with the person to help them get to where they need to go inshallah Dr. Rani Awad I can talk to you forever it's like it's so amazing um, and uh, certainly I want to bring you back on inshallah ta'ala into this if you're actually interested and in, 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 uh, it'd be really an honor for us to have you back Jazakallah khair may Allah bless you and, and increase you in knowledge inshallah and bless all the knowledge that you've given to us and you've shared with us in the community how do people get a hold of you? There's a couple of different ways, Barakallahu Fikum, by the way, and I'm happy, inshallah, one day to, 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 to join you again. Mm -hmm. um, and if people want to kind of follow some of the work we're doing, the Stanford Muslim Mental Health Lab has a website on the Stanford Medicines page. Also, the Khalil Center also has its website, a YouTube channel that has a lot of recordings. Um, I'm on both Instagram and Twitter, as in like the lab is 
as well as my work. So they can follow me at Dr. Rania Awad um, and at the Stanford MH Lab, um, uh, Muslim MH Lab, actually. And look us up and follow because they can follow the Khalil Center as well. And all of that helps kind of follow this work of Islamic psychology and what we're working on, inshallah. Ta'ana. And you do have a public profile, I think, a public uh, Facebook profile as well on, on yes. Facebook. Jazakallah khair. May Allah bless you, inshallah. May Allah accept the work you do and give, inshallah, everyone who listens here, I pray that this is actually a source of help and healing for you. And may Allah forgive us for our shortcomings and mistakes and please make dua for us going forward. Barakallahu feekum. This audio production has been made possible by the contributions of people like you. Please consider making a donation. Our virtual line collection is now open at www dot islam dot ca forward slash donate you have been listening to an audio production by the islamic institute of toronto education for virtuous living please visit our website at www dot islam dot ca